0: We've heard a little bit uh, about Aspen Groves and kids and all being on the same team together. We are a people that are connected to one another through Jesus the Christ. That means that we're part of a bigger story, that we have a bigger narrative, a bigger history than just you and I all by ourselves. Um, We may look at this room and see a bunch of individuals or small groups of people, but in reality, we are a group of people made into a family because of our connection to Jesus. And part of being in a family or part of a family uh, means knowing the family stories, the history, the foundation from which we've come so that we can see where we're supposed to be going together. This evening we're gonna be kicking off our fall sermon series in the book of Samuel. And Samuel is part of the Hebrew scriptures, the part of the Bible that describes the interaction between God and his people before Jesus became incarnate in the story that Ryan just read. So as we encounter the story, remember that it is more than just an ancient history or a theological text that we're reading. This story is our story, we're grafted into it. We're grafted into this rich tradition of God seeking to redeem his creation through human beings and ultimately through Jesus. We started this sermon series in Samuel last September. And the book opens with the nation of Israel in deep political, social, and religious trouble. After God graciously uh, and miraculously rescued them from slavery in Egypt, he promised to give them a land of their own where their people could thrive and, and be a blessing to the rest of the nations. But instead, they struggled to obey God, and they turned to idolatry and to sin and to violence and inner tribal warfare. It was a mess And at the end of the book of Judges, that's the book that comes right before Samuel, we read these haunting words. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was into this kind of Wild West setting of kill or be killed that God intervened and began to prepare the people for the rise of the king. First, there was the miraculous birth of Samuel, the prophet who was God's representative to the people. Then there was King Saul, whom God raised up and his career started brightly, but then through a series of disobedient actions, he lost favor with God. And instead, God turned his focus, his eye on a young shepherd boy named David. And at one point, the prophet Samuel secretly anointed David king. And last year, we, entered with, we ended with 1 Samuel 16, in which we saw David as a healer. And through his musical ability and his faith in Yahweh, David brought a healing presence to Saul who was tormented with these inner demons. But today we're gonna see another side of David, a king who is more than a healer, but he would be a shepherd of the people and a man who would lead by faith. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you not only for these stories that we get to to tell each other, but the fact that they are our story, that we are grafted and rooted in this rich tradition of you intervening in our lives and rescuing us when the odds look impossible. And I pray as we tell this very familiar story again that you would release new perspective and deeper faith in us. Amen. So today we're gonna to be looking at first Samuel seventeen, the very familiar story of David and Goliath. And to help me, I have some friends I wanna invite forward who are going to read the parts of the story. So Emma Wilson, our narrator, and Jeremy Ganoza, our Goliath. Come on up, people. I don't, you don't even announce you. Michael and Tommy and Ben. All right. Better?
1: Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah and they camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephesdamin. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them Then a champion came out from the armies of Philistine named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them,
2: Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us.
1: Again, the Philistine said,
2: I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together.
1: When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid.
0: Okay. Let's just pause for a minute. Let's forget for a moment that this is one of the best-known stories in all of the Bible. Like, even to people who don't read the Bible, it's one of those stories that everybody knows. Like, if you listen to any sports commentator, at least once in their career, they're going to have the David and Goliath analogy between the little team and the big team, right? It's, like, it's just one of those ones that, that people know about. But when we start with cliches, we almost always will miss the main point of the story. So I'll tell you now, the main point of the story is not believing you can do anything or it's not the power of positive thinking against insurmountable odds. We'll get to all those points later on. But for now, I want you to consider the scenario that you've just heard the philistines were a sea people who went to palestine and syria around 1200 bc they are probably the group of people responsible for the fall of the hittite empire and they're associated with the same people aegean people greek people who were in the battle of troy so that's like your philistine ilk coming out of that line of people now regardless of their origin they were known to be a formidable military adversary They were a constant threat in the side of the Israelites. And in fact, the people, Israel, they primarily wanted a king, begged God for a king to beat up the Philistines, even though Yahweh had been doing that job flawlessly, like Yahweh had never lost a battle against the Philistines up until 1 Samuel, right? So then they have this King Saul. Now, as was often the custom in Aegean-type warfare, they would sometimes propose that, hey, you put your best champion out, we'll put our best champion out, and we'll save a lot of bloodshed on the battlefield, and whoever wins, you know, we'll kind of call it a a, a win for the whole team. Now, if you had a a champion like Goliath, that would be a really good deal, right? Um, This dude was massive, and single combat for the Philistines would have been just a no-brainer. And what about this champion, Goliath? Like, what's the deal with this guy? Is he really nine feet plus uh, feet tall? I mean, is that real or is that embellishment? Well, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Ancient skeletons have been found numerous times ranging from seven to nine feet. And while rare, they show that such people actually did exist in history. The Bible records numerous occasions uh, of various descendants of the Nephilim and the Rephaim who tormented people through their size and their strength. In fact, the conquest of the promised land in the book of Joshua and Judges was largely a war against these types of descendants of the Nephilim, The largest man ever recorded in Scripture is likely King Og, who had said he had an iron bed 14 feet long, which puts him at about 10 or 11 feet tall. And then outside the biblical narrative, we see many other ancient writings, Sumerian, Babylonian, and Egyptian, plus Greek texts, writing of champions about uh, of the same size and strength of, of Goliath-type people. In fact, many of you have read uh, the Enuma Elish, and Enkidu is one of these type of superhuman people. And these superhumans were champions of epic feats and are so widespread in both literature and archaeology that it would be well within the realm of possibility and rationality to assume they could have existed. Now, regardless of Goliath. Actual size and strength. One manuscript, uh, the Hebrew manuscript, says he was nine foot six. Uh, a Greek manuscript says he was six foot nine. Um, but we all know—well, maybe you don't know—that ancient people were around five five as an average. So whether you're nine six or you're six nine, that's a massive person. That's like me and Tommy. Like, yeah, it's, it's worse. Worse than that. The, the, more like more like Marcus. Yeah, yeah, Mark, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, just his armor alone, 125 pounds of bronze. His iron spear weighed 15 pounds. um, And it was tied with a string like a weaver's beam so that it would rifle and spin when it flew so it could travel further. He had a massive sword and he was armored from head to shins with bronze. And seeing this champion come up against Israel through the eyes of physics, that's a big dude, through the eye of combat as an experienced warrior, and through the eyes of probability, we don't have a chance to beat this guy. We can understand verse 11 when we read, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, especially read like Jeremy did, they were greatly dismayed and greatly afraid. After all, it was Saul's personal duty as king of Israel to stand up to this man.
1: Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shama. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son,
0: Now take for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese for the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For for Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines.
1: So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in a battle array, shouting the war
0: cry. That's you guys, war cry.
1: Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words and David heard them.
0: So in those days, most nations didn't have standing armies. Like in our nation, it's a thing. Like you can be an army soldier and that's your career, like you get paid for it. But in those days, when a king just called you to battle, you just had to come. Most kings, like Saul, we know he had a, a general, Abner was his, his name, and he probably had a standing security force, maybe of several hundred people. But when you're going up to battle other nations, you just call all the farmers and the, the, pa, uh, uh, the shepherds and anybody who's able-bodied, and you call them, and they have to come with their sticks and their hoes and their rakes, and that's kind of what you're fighting with here. Um, And that meant that when the king called you up, there's no ration set aside for you. There's no paycheck. And so you had to have family members come and deliver food and clothing and shelter and things like that. You had to be supported uh, by your own means. It's kind of a bum deal. Now... That's David's role in this story. So he's called by his father to go and deliver food and stuff to his brothers, three of them fighting in the war. And it never hurts to butter up their commanding officers either. So he's got some cheese and butter he's supposed to bring their commanding officer. But more than just the details, the story carries a deeper message. Like, just think back in this book of the Bible. And can you think of another young man who is sent by his father on an ordinary errand, And can you think of a story where that son is obedient to the father, and he ends up finding himself in a bigger story than I ever thought possible, and ends up becoming king of Israel? Anyone know that person? It's King Saul. It's King Saul. Remember, his his father had lost these donkeys, and they sent Saul, his son, out to look for the donkeys. And, And there, through a series of events, Saul meets Samuel, and then Saul is anointed king of Israel. What we have here is more than just David on an errand. We have some foreshadowing that David's star is about to rise. This is the kind of narrative, if we pay close attention, that kings are made of. Go ahead,
1: When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying,
3: What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine who, or that, it, that he should taunt the armies of the living Lord?
1: The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said,
0: Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the
3: battle. What have I done now? Was it not just a question?
1: Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before.
0: So flashback, chapter 16, the one right before this story. The prophet Samuel had anointed David, the youngest of eight brothers, to be the future king of Israel. Now that was done in secret, right, in the small community in, in, uh, in Bethlehem, and because Saul hadn't even found out about it yet. Had he found out about it, he would certainly have assassinated David by now. Now, who knows how much time has actually passed since chapter 16, but David was still a shepherd boy, a youth, likely a teenager. He must have wondered, how on earth am I supposed to actually become king? I'm a nobody and Saul's king and I don't get how this is all supposed to happen. But then he hears of this reward for killing Goliath. And it's not only a reward of riches, but it's also a reward about the hand of the king's daughter going to the one who kills Goliath. And he must have wondered could this be my ticket if I kill Goliath? Is this my way into the royal family? Which is why he asks about it like three times in the short story.
1: When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul,
3: Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to
1: David,
0: You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? For you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth.
3: Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from his flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be one like them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God." The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver deliver me from the hands of this Philistine.
2: Go, and may the Lord be with
3: you.
1: Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them.
0: Saul cannot believe that David would be a match for Goliath. I think the reason for that is he's looking at David and he's looking at Goliath through the eyes of the flesh. All Saul could see was a Philistine champion and an Israelite shepherd boy. Chapter 16 already sets us up for this error in Saul's vision. In that text, we remember that Samuel assumed one of David's older brothers was the one God wanted to be king. These brothers were taller, and stronger and more experienced in the world. But the Lord said, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now David lists this impressive list of um of bravery. Uh, You know, he defeats a bear and a lion, and he adds this detail that it was Yahweh who gave him victory over both lions and bears. David's heart is tied to God's heart. The time will come for us to speak about David's faith and his bravery, but for now, the text is tipping its hat. It's pointing us to Saul's demise. The king of Israel is willing to send a shepherd boy into battle, and that that is an act of triple cowardice. First, he's sending someone else to do the king's work. That's just cowardice in itself and an abdication of his duty. Second, he's risking Israel's well-being by putting it in the hands of the shepherd boy. And three, he has no regard for David's life. Like, here's this young kid coming out and trying to do the right thing for Israel, and he's like... Just like Tommy said, all right, go ahead, go on out there, kid. But the biggest symbolism comes when Saul dresses David in his own armor and in his own clothing. When a king gives someone a piece of his royal attire, they are symbolically giving them a part of their authority, they are abdicating a part of themselves. So Saul is symbolically passing kingship to David, even though it will take many more years of hardship for David to come in to his own as king.
3: So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them.
1: And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David,
2: Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks?
1: And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David,
2: Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field.
3: You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, who you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up onto my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you or He will give you unto our hands.
1: Then it happened when the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, so that he fell on his face to the ground.
0: Hit me up later, I was telling Tommy, there's whole articles on ancient warfare trash talk, they're really interesting, but if you, even if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you realize like, why are these guys like singing to each other before they chop each other to bits, it's like the whole chapters of them just trash talking in verse, uh, seriously it was a real thing, and uh, David, David beat you dude on that trash talk, that was good stuff. Up until this point, the narrative has been dominated by the perspective of the flesh. Right, like all Goliath sees are terrified Israelites and a foolish boy with a stick. Goliath is arrogant in his strength and in his experience as a warrior, and he trash talks about how his gods are superior to the boy and his god. Equally deceived are, are Saul and the Israelites. Despite all that God has done for them in the past through delivering them from superior enemies time and time again, all they see when they look at Goliath and the Philistines is a champion that they cannot beat. But David sees with a different pair of eyes through the eyes of faith. And I'm not talking about like, Just have faith, like this generic, gross kind of faith in nothing, like the universe will give him luck or something like that. And I'm not talking about faith in even his own ability. David's faith is firmly rooted in Yahweh. David sees a champion, all right, but it's not Goliath. David sees Yahweh as his champion, as the savior of Israel in the past and the savior of Israel in the present. See, so many times people interpret the story as an encouragement to just, just have faith and God will defeat your Goliath in life, like, and then you get to make up whatever your Goliath is. It's crazy, right? But, but this is not about some kind of holy pep talk. This is a story that encourages us to see our true champion, Yahweh, and to trust him in the midst of a world that is evil and corrupt, full of pain and full of suffering, Last meet, I met with uh, Aaron Newcomb from Engedi Refuge. Many of you have heard of that nonprofit or heard him speak before. Aaron and his wife founded Engedi to be a place where women could go who were escaping from sex trafficking, where they could come and they could find safety and healing through, uh, through Christ, and counseling and all kinds of other kinds of support. And when they were first looking at this. Horrible issue of sex trafficking. First, they were appalled that it's happening in America, second, appalled that it's happening in Whatcom County. And they would go to conferences, uh, Oklahoma and different places like that, where they would hear groups of people trying to fight sex trafficking. And one of the common things that Aaron kept hearing is that all of the emphasis was on awareness and prevention, which is fantastic. But then he started asking questions: well, like, what about what is going on for the women? who have already entered into sex trafficking and are trying to find a way out. And time and again, whether it was from Christians or non-Christians, he heard the same thing. Oh, they're too far gone. There's nothing that can be done. But Aaron and his wife began to see through the eyes of faith in a God who's able to transform hearts and minds and lives. And he believed And his wife believed that they could transform the lives of these women who everyone else had written off and who felt like their souls were completely crushed by abusers. And that's exactly what happens to this day in Engedi Refuge. In the six years um, that they've been an organization, over 60 women have been loved and counseled and rescued and redeemed through the power of Jesus, Jesus, the champion, right? How might we pray to grow in faith, and to see Jesus as the champion instead of the obstacles in our world as the champions that are insurmountable.
1: Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. <laughs> the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shahrim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army,
3: Abner,
0: whose son is this young man?
1: And Abner said,
0: By your life, O king, I do not know.
3: You inquire whose son the youth is.
1: So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with
3: the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him,
0: Whose son are you, young man?
3: I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite.
0: So the true, the true champion, Yahweh, prevailed over this seemingly insurmountable adversary in the form of Goliath. He worked in and through David, the future king, and the man who saw with the eyes of faith that it was really a God, his God versus Goliath, not just his, his own skill or his own might. But of course, David would not be the final king of Israel, and Goliath would not be the final enemy. The story of David and Goliath, Yahweh, and the gods of the Philistines, it all points to the rise of the true king and the defeat of the ultimate enemy. At the end of the passage, we learn that David's son, or David is the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And centuries later, another king would be born in Bethlehem, and this king would be the son of God, and his name is Jesus. And when he was born, the angels would declare the good news of great joy over a savior born in Bethlehem. While Jesus did come as a descendant of the line of kings, he wasn't just one more human savior sent to rescue us from a human enemy like Goliath. Jesus came to defeat the ultimate enemy, the Goliath of all creation, sin, and eternal death. When we look at our our sinfulness and our shame, our failure through the eyes of our flesh, we see, I see, an an, an unbeatable enemy, and I feel inescapable shame and consequences. But the true champion, Jesus, has come and won the battle on our behalf. And that is what this story in 1 Samuel 17 points to. It gives us hope that the God who rescued the tribes of ancient Israel from giants is also the God who rescues us from sin and death and from injustice and from decay. So let's rejoice that God has sent a Savior. Let's worship Jesus, who is our champion. And let's pray that our eyes would be opened so that no matter the circumstances, we begin to see the supremacy of Jesus rather than the failures and obstacles to our faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for eyes of faith like we read in this passage, that you would release um, perspective for each of us. To see and believe, Lord Jesus, what you have done for us and for our creation and coming and dying in our place and rising from the grave and now reigning over all creation. Help us to hope that you have um, rescued us. Help us to put our faith in that. And help us to hope for the new creation that is bound to come in your timing when you make all things new. Bless you, Lord. Amen.